Good morning, everyone. Glad you're here. Looks like we have a lot of brethren that are gone this morning, and in fact, was informed that over the next month or so, we're going to have a number of brethren who are going to be gone traveling, and so our numbers may be down from, us, from that very standpoint. But I also want to welcome our visitors. We're glad that you're here and with us and, and worshiping our, our God this morning. And if you were here within the Bible class this morning, the sermon is kind of going along the lines of it and the, and the article that was written this morning along the lines of fighting the good fight. What's interesting about that phrase is that when you look at this phrase, there's a number of ways that when you see it, you're like, yeah, that's what we ought to be doing. We're in a, we're in a fight. We're in this battle, right? Or as the article, we're grappling with life issues, whatever they may be. And interesting to that is the perception that every individual has regarding what this phrase means. So what I plan on doing this morning is actually showing us what not to do. And it takes up a good portion as far as the slides are concerned. And then the very end, of course, what to do, how to fight this kind of fight. And the reason why I phrase it that way is, um, and as I put it in the article, one of the things that I've learned in, in various martial arts was... You know, you, you teach something and everyone, the first time they, they look at it being addressed and how to do a certain move and everyone's nodding their head like this. Everyone got it? Yes. You go out and practice it, no one gets anything. And it could be a simple move, whatever move that may be in the art of um, defense that you're learning. And then the per professor or the instructor or um, whatever, that, however your instructor is referred to as, that instructor says, okay, here's what you don't do. <laughs> and he teaches, oh, yeah, that's what I was doing. And then he says, now, instead of doing it this way, do it that way. And then now you get the distinction. And then it makes sense. And that's kind of what we're doing with the, the sermon this morning. And so we're looking at what not to do, and then we'll get into what to do. So when we're talking about fighting the good fight, sometimes we need to know who our enemy is. And, well, we need to know who our enemy is not. Right? And it's easy to forget. We know it biblically, but in the day-to-day -day living, we may not know who our enemy is. And who we think our enemy is may not very well be our enemy, right? So some Christians have difficulty seeing who the real enemy is, and they fight God's people instead of the real enemy, right? In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, right? Children, you, I think you had this as one of your memory verses, right? Who's the enemy? Is it flesh and blood? Is it man? Or as Paul says, it's against principalities of powers of darkness. We're, we're talking about Satan and those who follow his kind. That's who our enemy is, right? So that when, when Jesus is speaking to Peter, and Peter in the goodness of his heart is saying, Lord, I'm going to make sure nothing ever happens to you. Because in my mind, he's not saying it this way, by the way, I'm paraphrasing. In my mind, you are the king after David's throne. And I will not let anything happen to you. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Jesus knew who the real enemy was. And so sometimes we fail to see who our real enemies are. And in this case, when we are looking at issues of life, we sometimes forget that. For instance, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 12. And I want us to, to look at the text here of what Jesus is saying. And note, sometimes people were looking at Jesus. And here is Jesus who is coming in. And by virtue of his behavior, of his fruit, he's showing himself to be the one the prophets were speaking of. But because of the people's view of the prophets, 
and who the Messiah would be, the people looked at Jesus and did not think him to be the Messiah, some of them at least. Some of them looked at him as an enemy of God. So in Matthew chapter 12, let me share the passage and then get into some of the context. Verse 22 of Matthew 12. One was brought to Jesus, who, I mean, then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and Jesus healed him. So that the blind man or the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. So here's what Jesus does. But because of people's perception of Jesus, here's their reaction. All the multitudes in verse 23 were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Now, when the Pharisees heard it, this, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub. Now, we have the hindsight of 2,000 years. We've got our Bibles. We've got context. We've got a lot going for us. And we're saying, how could they miss it? How could they think that Jesus cast out demons by Satan, by Beelzebub, by the devil? It just seems ludicrous. But in that context, these individuals thought that that's exactly what Jesus was doing. Their hardened heart could not even see that they're fighting against God. In the same way, when the Apostle Paul writes to the churches in Galatia, it's a scathing letter. I, I, we just had completed our Bible study in Galatians a couple weeks ago at Brookdale. And, and one of the things that I was sharing there was if there's any letter that the Apostle Paul wrote that could be more strongly written, you're not going to find it. The letter to the Galatian Christians is as strong as it gets. And it is a scathing regard to the fact that they were trying to justify their salvation outside of Jesus. And that's why it was such a scathing letter. And Paul, in, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 16, after he shares with them all these truths and how that they're justified through faith in Jesus Christ and not through the old law, not through circumcision, he said, have I become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Because many of these Christians had become enemies of the Apostle Paul. And they were listening to other teachers. And Paul is saying, remember the good news that you received at the very beginning? How have you turned away so quickly from it? Because that's what we came and preached to you. And so whether it's that or, or many other situations, sometimes people look and see different ways of Jesus. And of thus enemies. And they realize he's not an enemy in fact was it not jesus himself who to the apostle paul before he was a convert of christianity where he says paul what are you trying to do it's hard for you to kick against the goads you're fighting me you shouldn't be fighting me because you're doing that you're fighting against god you need to know who the real enemy is. And, of course, he saw the truth and turned away from his way of life and turned to Jesus Christ. So what happens in the first century, on, no doubt, we see it happening today, right? That's what we're talking about. So sometimes we fail to see who the true enemy is. And as a result of not knowing who the enemy is sometimes, then we don't even know how to fight the fight. And so not knowing who to fight, we sometimes choose the wrong weaponry right so real life situation 
I'm on my feet and I have a couple of feet distance from you, I'm, I'm not going to use certain tools in my arsenal because of the range of our battle. That's military. You learn that, right? If you're far away from each other, you can't do anything. I'm, Jacob and I, we're a good 20 feet away from each other. There's no way for us to really engage each other. But you get close enough. Depends on how close we are. Depends on how striking distance. Same thing with how we go out and fight. So sometimes we yield God's word, or excuse me, wield God's word in that very same way. I'll give you for instance. One, for instance. Some Christians look at this book, and we may be in this room, and we may be guilty of this. We look at this book as simply, and I'm being very general when I say this, simply as a legal book. It's like going to the courthouse or going up to the state capitol and pulling out whatever, and we got legal 1.1 whatever law code. And we read it that way. And we miss the story of redemption. We really miss the big picture. And we just pull out of thin air passages and going, there's our law. That's what we do. Right? Christians were persecuted. They were crucified. We can read that. Um, well, we can't read that in scripture. We can read that in history. So we say, all right, well, Jesus was nailed to the cross, so we need to be nailed to the cross. We've got to follow that biblical pattern. No one would ever say that. But we'll take other scriptures and other passages and, and do similar things, however. And so we wield God's word in this regard. And that's why this morning's Bible study we saw in Mark chapter 7 was dealing with this idea, right, of man-made traditions that are imposed as if it were the very word of God. And others outside of the tradition would look at him going, how can you see that as a tradition? I mean, as, as something that would be equated to a commandment of God. And they look at us as crazy. No different than when we look at others that are holding to traditions that we are so clear, right? We would never confess our sins to someone else as a mediator except Jesus himself. But we have individuals in the name of Christianity who will go to a man he's behind a certain door and they'll make their confessions or they'll pray certain prayers that are not even written in scripture but applied as if they were God's word itself we see that from our vantage point and so it's easy to see the traditions of other individuals and thus we can see how they wield God's word not true to scripture I'll give you one example of the first century. Look at Colossians chapter 2. Read this passage. We've read it a few times over the years, but I want you to read it one more time and zero in on how easy it is for us to see someone else's traditions. But then I want you to take stock and wonder how easy it is to see your own traditions. I'm going to tell you, you're going to struggle to find whatever traditions you feel because everything that you believe should not be a tradition in your mind. It should be God's truth. And so whatever traditions you have, you may not struggle with because you don't see anything wrong with it. But someone else's traditions, you can see what's wrong with that. So Colossians chapter 2, beginning here in verse 20, um, verse 20 to 23. I'm going to back up to verse 19 of well, Colossians chapter 2. Excuse me. I was in Philippians. All right. Colossians chapter 2, beginning here in verse 20. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, Why? As though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch 
do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things, indeed, they have an appearance of wisdom, but it's in self-imposed religion, self or false humility, neglect of the body. But Paul says, but they have no value against the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, you got the indulgence of the flesh on this side, and you have asceticism on this side. This asceticism does not have anything more beneficial than the indulgence of the flesh on this side. That's what Paul is saying. But some in the name of following after God, following after Jesus, they impose these things as if they are true to sound doctrine. And he says, these things have an appearance of wisdom, but that's all it is, self-imposed religion, right? So sometimes we can yield or wield, excuse me, God's word in this regard. And as a result, when we don't know who the enemy is, we can take passages. I'll use one in particular, 2 John verse 9. Any passage, any time a brother or sister in Christ does not do what I think they should be doing in the name of sound doctrine, we'll go to a passage like 2 John. And go ahead and turn your Bibles to 2 John because we've used this many times, brethren. In one context or another, we use this passage. And some of you can already quote it, but I'm just going to go ahead and read the, the text here in 2 John 9. And here's what he says in the passage here. Verse 9, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have preeminence among men, does not receive us. And therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with... I'm in 3rd John. I'm telling you, I can't even get to my Bible passages this morning. 2nd John, here we go. Verse 9, whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. So, you came and you partook of the Lord's Supper with unwashed hands, our Mark 7 type thing. Brethren, you cannot come in and partake of the Lord's Supper with defiled hands. Now, we can look at this as going, okay, that's a first century example. I get it. I see how ludicrous that is. But what of something else? Like this morning when we're talking about the, the Lord's Supper, um, not the Lord's Supper, when we talk about the head covering, excuse me. Some brethren are serious about that. And while that is not a great issue among us here in this room, for brethren a, a generation ago, like 20 years ago, it was huge. It's a big deal. And it caused much consternation among brethren. But those that would not wear the head covering, you could hear from brethren, you need to abide in the doctrine of Christ, and if you do not, he needs to be a curse. Well, I believe that was wielding the word of God completely out of its text. For instance, go a few verses back. Verse 7. Many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. You know why? Because this person is against Jesus who came in the flesh. And they're saying he did not come in the flesh. This person is against Jesus. But we'll take something like head covering and saying, okay, 
you're not following the teaching of God, the doctrine of Christ, and therefore you're antichrist. A complete misuse of God's word. But it's been used this regard in, in many other subject matters, in many other issues, because it's a good passage. It sounds like the one standing for truth has got the basis covered because they use 2 John verse 9. Right? So such Christians then will use God's word to fight other brethren, but Paul gives the real reason in any of these scenarios. So if you go back to Ephesians 4, I want you to look at the text here. Ephesians 4, verse 18. And we're going to look at a little bit of context, and from there we're going to actually go right into 1 Timothy and look at the letter in general of 1 Timothy. So Ephesians chapter 4, he says over here in verse 17. Therefore, I say, testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because the ignorance that is in them, because the blindness of their heart, being past feeling, having given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. What kind of brethren are we talking about? We're talking about gross conduct of immorality, gross character. Character that is not befitting of someone who is following Jesus, the new man. The new man who, according to the first three chapters, and particularly in verses 1 up until this point of chapter 4, is walking in newness of life, walking worthy of the calling. In this, one more time, he says in verse 18, having their understanding darkened, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance in them, because of the blindness in them, because of the blindness of their heart and their past feeling they give themselves over to lewdness they give themselves over to all uncleanness but sometimes when we're fighting the wrong fight and we're not fighting the good fight we can take someone who's walking in the spirit of Christ and list them as one who's contrary to Christ and so we have to be careful on who we're fighting, and we have to be careful not only in who we're fighting, but how and when we're fighting them, right? So not knowing who to fight, we not know when to fight. Sometimes it's, it's a phrase. I don't know when I started using this. It's picked up from someone else. And I, oh, see, now you got to go through idiomatic expressions. I feel uncomfortable. When we are willing to die on a hill for something that is not even an issue. But we feel like this is the hill. I stake my claim. We're going to go to death. We're going to fight to the death on this subject matter. And some of us, we are dead serious that this is a subject matter that if you aren't right on this issue, you're going to lose your soul. And someone else will look at you like, are you, are you kidding me? They'll look at that and be like, that's not even an issue for where we're coming from. Right? And so these are things that we have to stop and consider because we're going, okay, go into the battle, battlefield. Is this one of those? It's no different than parenting, right? I mean, Julie and I, I remember, and of course, not limited to Julie and I, every parent goes through this at some point. You're raising your children, and your children want to do something that you don't think is good. In fact, you think is wrong. And I've used this illustration, I'll use it once more. And I don't remember how old Malia was when she asked for red hair, right? Hey, hey. Hey. 
Yours would be orange compared to red hair that Malia wanted. <laughs> and I thought, oh, let me tell you what was really in my heart. This is full disclosure, full transparency of parenting. Red hair. Doesn't she know that I'm the preacher? So she's going to go ahead and make me look bad as a preacher because I can't control my daughter's opinions of what is good and what is not good. Red hair is full of rebellion. Right, Richard? No. <laughs> so you, you've got, okay, so you got this stigma. And I had the stigma going, I cannot, for the life of me, my, my daughter, no, not red hair. Years later, she asked for blue hair. I was wishing she had asked for red hair at this point. <laughs> and I remember having a sermon. I, and this is, I mean, she's, that was 14. This is about, this is not quite 10 years ago. It was soon after we moved here. And I remember if Malia had a streak or a partial red hair. I don't know what, what, what it was. And I know what it was. Ah, I remember. It was her nose ring. She came to church with it too. I was, I was embarrassed. But Julie and I came to the decision where, is this where we die on the hill? Or are there battles that are actually, when we're dealing with actual sin? And I took it upon myself. I remember one particular night that I said, Malia, I don't like the blue hair, the red hair. all the, And, of course, I don't think she had the, the blue hair for sure. I don't know if she ended up having, she did not even have the red hair, okay. Um, it felt like she did in my head. <laughs> But I remember saying, Malia, I love you. What you're asking is not sinful. So I'm actually going to take you to Nashville to a reputable place, and you'll get your nose ring. I'll do it myself. And she came to church. She was trying to be very discreet with it, not flash it or anything like that, but it was a very tiny one. She had that. And no telling however you saw her, however you saw me, through her actions. And I went from not being able to deal with it, not being comfortable with it, not liking it at all, to saying, okay, she's made her choice. I'm going to support her in this decision, even if I disagree with her decision, because there is no sin. Now, some of you may say, wait a second, Mitch, there is sin. Right? And then you'll go and find whatever passage in Scripture and show me why that was sinful for her to do what she did. That's what I'm saying. Everyone's going to get to a point in their individual life, whether it's within the family, whether it's amongst brethren, that it's going to be a fight that they're willing to fight. And then something greater comes down the road and you wonder, when I thought I was fighting a battle that I thought was so important, life and death, soul-condemning important, I'm having to rethink, was it in fact that important? Every brother and every sister in Christ has got to go through this. That's understandable. But we have to be very diligent to knowing when to fight this good fight of faith. Some don't know the difference between an, opin uh, an opinion and what is explicitly revealed as the weightier provisions of the law. In fact, in Matthew chapter 23, it's like this morning we were in Mark chapter 7. Well, Matthew 23 has similar things, even if it's different issues itself. I want you to look at the text there in Matthew 23 and note 
what's being said and note what Jesus is actually trying to get at. So Matthew 23, here in verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, which is similar to Mark 7. For you pay tithe and mint and anise and cumin and neglected the weightier matters of the law. Okay, so you got those matters of the law, and then you got these matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. He says, these you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. See what he's saying? There are some matters of the law that were, according to Jesus, lesser matters. He says, don't neglect that. But what you did neglect was you neglected the weightier matters of the law. Sometimes you don't know when to fight. And so these are very, very important situations. If we're going to learn how to fight, learn when to fight, one of the best things that I've learned, and I did not learn this in wrestling, but I learned it in jiu-jitsu, is even when you're fighting, fight with economy. Now, for some of you, like, I have no idea what dollars and cents have to do with fighting, right? I want to tell you something. When, when you are in any kind of a battle, right, and this is, in this case, it's for fun. We're not, doing, we're not actually trying to hurt each other, right? But when you are in any kind of conflict, in this case, it's a practice-controlled conflict on the mat, you have to realize that you won't always be 20 years old. You won't always be in the best shape of your life. You won't always be at the strongest point in your life. At some point, you get, you get slower, you get weaker, less conditioned, you have heart issues, all these kinds of things, right? So you cannot use all your strength in the first five seconds, and now you're gone for the rest of your struggle. <clears throat> get the life lesson in what I'm saying. You have to be able to, to be economical in what you're doing and how you're fighting and what have you. Knowing when to fight, knowing when to press, knowing when to hold back. Because in real life, you can get burned out real fast in your walk with God. Just go 100 miles per hour, plow through every issue with every single person. No patience. Not waiting to see how things unfold. Not waiting for the right opportunity to best exercise self-control, let alone control of your opponent. And you miss the big picture as a result. So, you know the difference between when one person does this and one person does that. You get to see their fruit, right? And you get to see how they, quote, unquote, fight the good fight of faith. When someone says, I'm fighting the good fight of faith, and here's their fruit. The next person says, I'm fighting the good fight of faith, here's their fruit. Can you distinguish between their fruit? Because the fruit is what comes from inside, right? Just like this morning, it's not what goes in the body that defiles, but what comes out of the person, what comes from their heart. That's what defiles an individual, or that's what is shown to be purified in that individual. And when the person, when Jesus was talking about what was unpure, defiled, he mentions all kinds of immor gross immorality. Not issues, but the immorality. That's what he shows. So, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 20, right? 
by their fruit you shall know them. You can know who the false prophets are by their fruit. And when you look at who those false prophets are, notice what is coupled with it. Look at what the word of God is actually saying. Verse 15 of Matthew 7. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Okay, first of all, they're not pure in heart. They're disguised. Right? They are actual wolves, but they have sheep's clothing. So they're not even the true person. They come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruit. Right? Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes, figs from thistles? No, you gather grapes from, from vines, right? A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. When someone does what is evil, it's because of evil in their heart. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire, and therefore, by their fruit or fruits, you will know them. And that is why you had Jesus saying these following words, because of their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And so what is it that they're doing? Well, look at what these people are doing that Jesus is saying. Many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name. Done many wonders in your name. And then I will say to them, depart from me who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. Very clear. And so when we get to this statement in 1 Timothy chapter 6, when you read verses 11 through 16, and he's talking about fighting the good fight, it is an actual end to a sandwich, if I can refer in this regard. You got the bread on this side, and he says, fight the good fight at the beginning of the letter after his prayer. And at the end of the letter before his final prayer and final um, statements, he says it, fight the good fight once more. So twice he says it. Everything in between is how you fight the good fight, Timothy, and what you teach brothers and sisters in Christ, Timothy. That's the context of this letter. And that's what we're seeing here in Paul's uh, commendation to Timothy. So 1 Timothy 1.18, 1 Timothy 6 verse 12, fight the good fight. Well, look at what he says here. Let's kind of skim very quickly through 1 Timothy. And some will say, well, this is just a pastoral epistle. That's the way it's traditionally referred to as, right? So the reality is here's... A man of God telling another man of God who is preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, I want you to live this way and I want you to teach this way. So, after he tells him in verse 18, I, I charge and commit to you, son Timothy, fight the good fight. Wage the good warfare, having a faith and a good conscience. Because others have rejected that faith and good conscience. Okay? And he uses a couple of names as a result. So now as he goes into the meat and potatoes of what he's saying on how to fight the good fight, he says, I want all men everywhere to pray. And I want you to lift up holy hands. In other words, don't pray of all these wonderful prayers, but you have undefiled lives. Or excuse me, defiled lives. That's hypocrisy. 
So I want you to lift up holy hands. Hands, in other words, a lifestyle that is pleasing to God. A workmanship of God that is not ashamed. Right? You're pure. Now you can lift up these holy hands and pray to God on behalf of all these other, in, other individuals. Then he says in verses 8 following, here's how I want um, the men at lifting up holy hands. Here's what I want you to do. And I want you then as a result of women to live godly lives. And so this is the passage we refer to when we talk about immodesty. Correct? Let's read the immodesty here. So women, here's what he says um, beginning in verse 9. In like manner, like the men lifting up holy hands, I want the women to adorn themselves in modest apparel. Okay. Have we defined it or are we going to let the scripture define it? Scripture says, with propriety and moderation. Okay. That sounds like I can figure that out. But here's what Paul says. Not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. And some will then say, okay, as soon as you braid your hair, sin. Costly clothing, sin. I think if we were to get that literal with these scriptures, women, just about every one of us are sinning right now. Because we have costly clothing compared to these people in the first century. We're clothed like kings and queens today. Right? What he was getting at was the gaudiness that was unbefitting of someone with modesty, with meekness. Someone who is content with life where they're at and not trying to outdo one another and trying to look at me. Right? That's what was that issue here. One more time. He contrasts that with all the braided hair, gold, pearls, costly clothing. But in contrast, which is proper for women professing godliness. That's the point. Godliness. With good works. That's the point. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Why? Because women were doing the very opposite. We can go to 1 Corinthians 14 to see that's what happened at the church there in Corinth. He's talking about a life that is pure and pleasing to God with godliness, purity. And he then goes on to say, here's the kind of godly men that we need. If we're going to have leaders in the church, if we're going to have men that's overseeing the church, they need to fit this picture of godliness. And so he talks about elders and he talks about deacons in chapter 3. And then he says to him in verse 14, these things I write to you, though I hope to come shortly. But if I'm delayed, I write that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself. How, Timothy? With godliness. How you conduct yourself in the house of God, right, verse 15, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. What is it that he's trying to teach? That God was manifested in the flesh, like the antichrist that were, con that were denying this. Justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among Gentiles, believed in the word, received up in glory... And now, what's the difference between what I'm telling you, Timothy, to live a good, godly life with those that are not? He says, the Spirit expressly says, chapter 4, verse 1, that in latter times some will depart from the faith. And what are they doing to depart from the faith? They give heed to de deceiving spirits, doctrines of demons. They speak lies. How? In hypocrisy. 
They have their own conscience seared. That sounds like it's very intentful. Forbidding, here's some specifics that we're doing. They're forbidding to marry, and they were commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Eating of meats had been offered to idols as one example. And so here's the contrast between those who are living godly life, as Paul is telling Timothy to teach the brethren, and those who do not believe Jesus coming in the flesh, those who are teaching you cannot marry, forbidding to marry, in fact, and those that were saying you cannot eat these certain foods, kind of like what we were reading in Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. He says in verse 6, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you're a good minister. You're nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine, which you've carefully followed. Here's the contrast, but I want you to reject these things. Reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward what? Godliness, he says. He says, and then he gives the athletic example. For bodily exercise profits a little. It profits, but little compared to what? Godliness. Bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. And so he goes on teaching Paul, I mean teaching Timothy, here's how you live a godly life, and I want you to teach this godly living to brethren. Because godly living is profitable for all things. And with that in mind, he shares how you live your life. So in verse 11, these things command and teach, he says. Well, in actual lifestyle, it's not so easy. It's easy from a here's what you do, right? Live godly. That's simple enough. We go out and live our life and... We struggle with godliness because we have the flesh. We struggle with godliness because we have ego, we have pride. We struggle with godliness because we have hatred billowing up within the heart. We struggle with godliness because it is contrary to the spirit of God when the flesh is strong within us. And so it's easy then when we don't have the spirit of God that we fight, not the good fight, we fight the wrong people. We fight the wrong time. We fight with all kinds of wrong intensity. But when we see the teachings of what Paul is saying to Timothy of how the church should behave, all of a sudden it makes sense, right? So in chapter 6, I want to back up to verse 3 because David read for us from verses 11 through 16. I want to read verses 3 through 10 and get this picture of contrast between the good fight and those that don't fight the good fight of faith. After he speaks to slaves, he says, slaves, if you have believing masters... You need to be subject to them, right? Here's how I want you to live godly as a servant. And Paul tells him, you teach, Timothy, you teach and exhort these things. Then he goes on in verse 3. He says, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrine which accords with godliness. I think there's a theme here if you have not already heard it. The words which accord to godliness, this person is proud. He knows nothing, but he is obsessed with disputes, obsessed with arguments over words, obsessed as a result of being envious, filled with strife, 
a person who's reviling, this person who has evil suspicions, this person who has useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of truth. They may have truth as far as their belief system, but not truth in their life, the way they live life. And that's what Paul is dealing with. They suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Withdraw from these kinds of <coughs> brethren, if, if I can use it in that vernacular. And then he goes and contrasts that. Now, godliness, in contrast to this, is with contentment. And as a result, great gain. Those that go after worldly possessions and the means of having that type of status from it, you refuse. You withdraw. But the ones that have godliness with contentment, that is where the true riches are. That's where the gains are. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we will carry nothing out of it. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich, they fall into a temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. For which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, pierced themselves through with many sorrows. It's an amazing concept. You live a simple life. You have a simple way of living. Live godly. And Paul says that's commendable. You want to fight the good fight? First Timothy is a great letter for that. Of how to fight it. When to fight it. Who to fight it against. And that's what we're talking about here, right? You will know them by their fruit. You can tell who's fighting the good fight by their fruit. Now, just because we can tell it doesn't mean we will tell it because we all have different blinders or, um, what's the word? It's when you look at, like, instead of blue-tinted glasses, you look through pink-tinted glasses. You have a certain way of looking at things. And so we're going to come to different conclusions of how we think this actually is applied. But God is a judge, and he knows. He knows the heart of an individual. He knows whether they stand for truth or they stand for error. He knows what the truth and what the error is. Brethren, we're going to be judged by him, not by each other. Amen. And if that's the case, then remember who you're fighting against, why you're fighting, how you're fighting. Always check your heart. To see if, in fact, you are fighting the good fight of faith. Check it often. Be sure. I hope that this sermon helps us in our walk with God because too often Satan is saying, I don't have to do my work. You guys are doing a good job yourselves. I want Satan to have to step in because we're having the kind of harmony and unity in Christ Jesus that is explicitly taught here in scripture. Make his job hard, not easy. <coughs> That's how we fight the good fight. Now you may be here this morning and you're saying, all right, this is the kind of Christianity I want. Then I want you to know you have to give up your will. You have to give up your ego. You have to humble yourself. That's a hard thing to do when you're not a humble individual. But when you do that, good blessings from God takes place. And it is a beauty that transforms the way you live your life. It really does.
all of a sudden, how you treat people is, becomes even more important. And other people see your fruit. And they're like, huh. You used to be this way, but now you're that, this way. You know? I see a change in you. That's God working in and through your life when you humble yourself before him. That's the picture of baptism. When you're baptized into Christ, you're putting that old man with his corrupt ways. With all that we just talked about this morning of the flesh, he's dead now. And while you struggle because we physically live in the flesh, you have God working in and through your life. And he wants you to grow in Christ Jesus to this new man that is pictured just as Paul was teaching Timothy in 1 Timothy. That's an invitation for you. So if you believe that Jesus is the Christ who died on the cross to wash away the sins that live contrary to our God. And allowing his spirit to work in your life. And having this new person that continues to grow and grow and be molded in the image of our Savior. Who is in the image, the express image of our Heavenly Father. That's what the kingdom is about. That's what the good news allows you to have hope to be transformed into by the blood of Jesus. And brethren, again, if you're needing our prayers, by all means, take advantage of the opportunity. We'll pray for you. We'll pray on your behalf. And we'll love you through the whole process. That's a godly way of fellowship that we should have for each other. And that's your invitation as together we stand and sing this song.